You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. When the choir sings like that, those verses, it's like as a preacher, you're like, I'm done. Never mind. <laughs> so I wondering if you guys could, the choir could just come and like sing that outside my house every morning. So you just be reminded of what's really important, right? First of all, I want to take a minute to thank George and his team for the privilege of being here in the pulpit today. UPC will always be a special place in, in my life and my wife's life. We were students involved in this congregation uh, here when we were at the University of Washington. We were interns under Denny Ryberg uh, here at University Ministries. And as Tim had mentioned, for 14 years, we had a privilege of being involved uh, with University Ministries as the pastor and, and director of that program. But also because this community of faith is now important as well to our daughter, Olivia, who's a junior here at the University of Washington and went last summer on the World Deputation Program. Uh, matter of fact, when uh, she told us that she was going on the World Deputation Program, you would have thought as former directors of the ministry would have been, yeah, instead we're like, what? <laughs> what do you mean you're going on that program? Who, who's, who's running that thing over there nowadays, you know? Where are they going to send you? And so, but she had a good time. And then our daughter Lily will be a, a freshman at the universe, or at Seattle Pacific University uh, this fall, and, and will be participating in the end as well. And so, uh, UPC is, is has and will continue to be a very important place to us. Uh, before I get into the uh, scripture and the sermon today, though, I kind of have a kind of a two part thing that I'm doing. I want to share uh, with you a little bit of an update, but also a word from my heart uh, as it pertains to UPC and its 107 year history of investing in the University of Washington community. Five years ago, I left UPC to serve with Young Life, a youth organization, to help them develop college ministry under their banner. We took the best, I like to tell people, we took the best of university ministries uh, in the end, and we took the best of this thing called Young Life that works at the high school level and created this thing called Young Life College. When we started, uh, there was only two, uh, what we kind of called uh, the renegade ministries, these two kind of maverick programs that started without kind of the blessing of young life. But these two programs, uh, but this fall we'll launch our 107th uh, ministry, including 15 that are international. Young Life College will impact over 25,000 college students this year. And the reason why I tell you this isn't to emphasize Young Life or me, but I want you to know that the vision for this, with both the president of Young Life, Denny Ryberg, and myself, the vision for this um, came because of this church's 107-year commitment of investing in the university community. It's made the difference. I also want to point out that last year I had the privilege of serving on a task force for the denomination, for the PCUSA denomination. They created a task force uh, to st- uh, kind of create a new strategy in collegiate ministry across the denomination. Um, and this summer they adopted a new strategy primarily based on what is happening here at University Presbyterian Church as well. This church has made a difference. This fall, as you know, there is a special focus here at UPC on the call to our neighbor, the University of Washington. Something this church has been committed to from its beginning. It hasn't stopped. In the Young Life circles and the PCUSA world that I travel and uh, deal with, I talk a lot about why UPC is still a university church after all these years. While many other mainline university churches are only university churches in name and proximity. 
I visit campuses across the country on a regular basis, including Louisiana State a couple weeks ago. But anyway, I won't dwell on that. Um, we, we, I travel across the country regularly and see church buildings literally lining campuses across our country that have lost touch with the university community. We even have some here lining the University of Washington. What I'd like to do is take a minute here and point out so, with my, some of my time three things. There's many more than this, but time would not permit me to tell you them all. But three reasons why I think UPC is still in the game. There's still a university church after all these years. Um, sometimes, and, and I've had this privilege, you need to kind of step away a little bit to see the strengths that one has. And I've had the privilege to kind of step away while at the same time still being very involved in the university world, both in the church and the parachurch world, and get a chance to see. And I hope that these things can be an encouragement for you as you continue to make decisions and move forward. And the first thing is this. UPC has remained faithful to where God puts you. Right here. Some of you might remember decades ago when there was actually a discussion about moving University Presbyterian Church to the suburbs. But you decided to stay here. You decided to deal with the parking issues and stay true to the original calling of reaching and loving this university community. You've invested in students, faculty, administration, people that service the campus. You support the businesses on the Ave and in U Village. People in this church like Skip and Sid Lee literally moved into the neighborhood to, to renew 16th Avenue. And when street youth decided that the U District was a good place to live, you invested to provide space and resources for them. You've been re remained faithful to where God put you. The second thing is that UPC has remained faithful to welcoming strangers and launching out friends. Let me say that again. UPC has been faithful to welcoming in strangers and launching out friends. I've heard churches, churches have actually said this to me. Why would we spend our budget on college students who live here for only four years, put no money in the offering plate, and then leave after they graduate? Well, I tell them UPC does it because that's what Jesus would do, and that's who they are. You have been hospitable and generous to other people's kids. You have provided spiritual food and physical food. You've mentored them, employed them, and shared your home with them. Knowing all along that they may never put a penny in the offering plate and most likely will leave when their undergraduate degree is complete. You know that it's not about filling your pews, but about impacting a generation for a short time, and then watching them be launched into the world, into other churches, into the workplace, into the mission field, and into family life. You've played a brief role in their life and then set them free to be kingdom people wherever God leads them. And the third thing is this. UPC has been faithful to a multi-generational fellowship. I love the fact that I can say to people, on any given Sunday... I can walk into UPC and meet somebody that's 87 and somebody that's 7 and just about every age in between. Matter of fact, somebody came up to me after the service, 8.30 service and said, I'm your 87-year-old. <laughs> you can't say that about very many churches today, people. 
especially in university communities. It isn't always easy to do this, though. Different ages want different things. Different worship styles, their needs are different. But historically, UPC has navigated that road well when most have not. The benefit is that the young men and women have mentors to help them grow into maturity. And the older men and older women are more well-seasoned folk, gain renewed energy by letting the next generation serve and lead. UPC cannot be all things to all people. But you've been faithful to where God has put you. You've been faithful to building the kingdom, not just your church. And you've been faithful to young and old, the way church ought to be. It's unique. My prayer is that UPC never loses sight of these things. The story that is being told by me and many others around the world is being told as a testimony about you, but for, the, for us to acknowledge God's faithfulness to each generation. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you will be faithful to each generation. That's your promise you have made to us, and thank you for a people here at UPC that has held on to your commitment and your promise. Lord, we pray that we would continue to do this. Now open our eyes and our ears to hear what your Spirit has to say to us this morning as a community, but also individually. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I had a little trouble getting through that. It's a a little emotional for me to to talk about that kind of stuff when you come back to a place like this. So um, hold on to what you have. You got a good thing going here, and um, I see it all the time. Um, What isn't going on so well in places. So hold on to that. Hey, as we look in the scriptures today, if you'd give me the uh, liberty here, I want to actually read out of uh, the the version uh, that I spend uh, most of my uh, time, not every day, but uh, reading. I'm a little more comfortable with it, but you can follow with me. John chapter 3 is what we're looking at today, story of Nicodemus. We're going to actually start in chapter 2 because I think that's really where this story of Nicodemus begins. So chapter 2 of John verse 23, so you can kind of track with me in the scripture there, but as I said, I'm reading in the New Living Translation. Word of the Lord here. Because of the miraculous signs that he, Jesus, did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, many people were convinced that he was indeed the Messiah. But Jesus didn't trust them because he knew what people were really like. No one needed to tell him about human nature. Now a certain someone after dark one evening... A Jewish religious leader named Nicodemus, a Pharisee, came to speak with Jesus. Teacher, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach. Your miraculous signs are proof enough that God is with you. Jesus replied, I assure you, unless you're born again, you can never see the kingdom of God, Nick. What do you mean, Jesus? How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus replied, the truth is, no one... Nick, not you or anyone else can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. Humans produce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives new life from heaven. So don't be surprised, Nick, at my statement that you all must be born again. Just as you can, just as you can hear the wind, but can't tell where it comes from or where it is going, so you can't explain how people are born in the spirit. Nick, Jesus, what do you mean? Nicodemus explains. Jesus replied, you are a respected teacher and you don't understand these things. 
I assure you, I'm telling you what we know and have seen, and yet you won't believe us. But if you don't believe me when I tell you about things happen, that happen here on earth, how can you possibly believe if I'm going to tell you what's going to go on heaven? It's almost like there's a stop there and Jesus would be like, but I'm going to anyway. For only I, the Son of Man, have come to earth and will return to heaven again. As Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so I, the Son of Man, must be lifted up as well. So that everyone who believes in me will have eternal life. For God so loved the world, Nick. For God so loved you that he gave his only Son. That anyone, everyone who believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Nick, God did not send his son to the world to condemn it, but to save it. George started this series two weeks ago by saying that we all have issues. That's certainly true. One of the issues that we have, like Nicodemus, is doubt. We doubt ourselves, we doubt others, we doubt things, we doubt God's goodness and God's faithfulness. My wife, when she was a little girl, doubted the existence of Santa Claus. But the truth was that she did not want to admit her doubt about Santa Claus. And the reason she didn't want to admit her doubt about Santa Claus was that she had afraid if she did admit her doubt, she wouldn't get what she wanted from Santa. Now, my daughter, Olivia, that's good. My daughter, Olivia, when she was a little girl, she also doubted Santa Claus, but in a little bit of a different way. She doubted and wondered if the Santa Claus that showed up in Grandma and Grandpa's house on Christmas Eve was the real Santa or not. Every year, Grandma, or Santa showed up at Grandma and Grandpa's house. But was that the real Santa? Well, one day, she actually, instead of just keeping the doubt inside of her, said to Sherry, she said, Mom, is the Santa that comes to Grandma and Grandpa's house the real Santa? And Sherry, being the wise lady that she is, said, I don't know, Olivia, what do you think? <laughs> right? And Olivia thought about it and paused, thought about it for a while, and she said, well, that Santa looks an awful lot like Uncle Tom. <laughs> Alistair McGrath said this, doubt is a way in which God is able to deepen our faith by showing us our lack of faith. Let me say that again. Doubt is a way in which God is able to deepen our faith by showing our lack of faith. Or Earl Palmer often talked about toxic doubt and non-toxic doubt. See, many of us, especially those of us who spend a lot of time in the church world, think that the opposite of faith is doubt. But that's not true. The opposite of faith is actually unbelief. See, faith is a response to evidence that we've obtained. When we doubt, we have the opportunity to obtain evidence that can help us walk in faith. But those same doubts can also cause us to do nothing at all, to seek no answers, to remain noncommittal. So really the concern or the issue that we carry with us is not so much doubt, but what we choose to do with the doubt that we have. Francis Bacon, 16th century philosopher, said this, if a person begins with certainties, he or she will end in doubt. But if a person is content to begin with doubt, 
then he or she will end in certainties. Let me say that again. If a person begins, if a person begins with certainties, he or she will end in doubt. But if a person is content to begin with doubts, he or she will end in certainties. Dads don't always make the best promises in life. But one of the promises that I made was to my three daughters. I made a promise that when they turned 18, I would take them on any adventure that they wanted to do that they couldn't, in essence, do before they were 18. Follow me? So, like, on something like skydiving. Okay? Yeah. Well, this past spring... Yeah. This past spring, um, my middle daughter, Lily, turned 18, and she picked it skydiving. So... I was both excited and cautious. Like, I went into it, I was like, yeah, and cautious. Lily was just pure excitement. Like, I'm 18, let's go. Like, let's get this on the skydive. My wife, Sherry, on the other hand, was cautious. You might even say she was just purely scared to death of this whole thing. Now, Lily thought... um, thought about how great it was going to be all the time. Sherry, on the other hand, read stories about people who died skydiving. (laughs) Wasn't helpful. Now, I, on the other hand, did research. Okay, I did some research. I talked to people who had done it. I read up on the risks and rewards. I analyzed various companies. I looked at their success rate. Sherry told me it had to be 100%. So I looked at what type of rating they had. I checked on my life insurance policy, which, by the way, you're not covered if you're ever thinking about it. I did what I could to overcome the doubt. I did what I could to overcome my doubt, my concerns, and gain as much evidence as possible to assure my wife and others that this would be safe or relatively safe, at least as safe as skydiving could be, right? What's my point? My doubt moved me to gain insight and answers, enough evidence to get me to jump, though there would still be that moment of truth, that moment when I had to jump, when I had to have faith. I have to be really honest with you. Um, for the, you know, there were the hours before, matter of fact, there was kind of an entourage to this whole thing. Like, oh, a bunch of, a bunch of our kids' friends came and, and, uh, matter of fact, my, my daughter, who was jumping with me, her, her boyfriend, show, came and showed up and, and made a big poster sign, like gigantic, almost as big as this uh, space up here, uh, that said, will you go to the prom with me? That's how he asked her to, yeah, he's a winner. Okay, so. Right, moms? From a perspective, that was a win right there. So entourage. People would ask me over and over, are you nervous? And I really wasn't. And it wasn't because of my own macho football thing or anything like that. I just really wasn't nervous. I think I was more consumed with getting all this information and, and making sure I wasn't going to, you know, have my wife be able to say anything back to me that I didn't check out. So we want to check it out. But when I hit 13,500 feet and I started watching the people in front of me jump out and then I watched my daughter move towards the door, I started to get very nervous. But it really hit when I had to get, go to the door myself. And I have to be honest with you, if the instructor was not there behind my back, basically pushing me out, I may not have jumped. But I did. Friends, the failure to act on what you know is unbelief. See, failure to act on what you know is unbelief. Now, some people, because of doubt, will decide not ever to believe. But others will choose to believe even though they have doubt. Doubt happens. But what we do with it and the evidence we gain is the real issue. 
Nicodemus was a man who had doubt. We're not told exactly what the doubt is, but we certainly can speculate. He was a very powerful person. He was a religious person and even a teacher of religion. He, his goal as a Pharisee was to obey the strictest letter of the law. His hope as a leader was to see the kingdom of God realized for his people of Israel. He was intrigued by Jesus, it says in the story. But you need to know as well that all of his colleagues, for the most part, his fellow religious leaders, thought Jesus was a false prophet. And they wanted him disposed of. Nick was not quite sure what to do with Jesus. Do I go with the crowds, this, this enthusiastic crowd, maybe this crowd that's, that's gotten a little ahead of themselves and say he's the Messiah? Or should I lean with my colleagues who think he's a false prophet? What did, Nick did with his uncertainty, though, is he went directly to Jesus. He came at night, granted. It was in the dark. But he knew the crowds would be smaller He knew that maybe his fellow religious leaders would not be around, that nobody would see him. He was risking coming to Jesus. What would people think of their religious leader talking to Jesus? What would his colleagues think of him? What would they do to him if they found out he had come to Jesus? But also for Nick, what would happen to his way of living if he came to Jesus? His teaching. What might have to change What would Jesus say? What would Jesus do? The interesting thing about this story is Nick didn't just run into Jesus somewhere. He didn't just come upon Jesus accidentally while Jesus was preaching some grand sermon. No, Nick intentionally came to Jesus at night. He took the risk, unsure what others might think and do, what Jesus might think and do. He showed up. And isn't that what it is a lot of times for us in life? We just need to show up. We know that for a lot of relationships, they get hurt when we choose withdrawal. And that's certainly true of our relationship with Jesus. Doubt definitely does happen. It happens to religious types, to pastors. It happens to lay leaders and to pew sitters. It happens to college students and to parents who have lost a child, a family member that has lost a loved one. It happens to churches that go through difficult times. And it certainly happens to a dying world who has lost hope that anything good can possibly come. The good news is Jesus can handle the doubt. And he has answers for us. The one thing we can learn from Nicodemus is show up. My wife pointed something out to me. She said, Mike, when you really think about the story, how amazing the story is, when you think about the words that Jesus spoke, matter of fact, Dale Bruner in his commentary talks about how he said, he goes, look, a lot of people will just say this is one of Jesus' many discourses about life and faith. Dale Bruner says, no, it's the discourse. These are the words of words. And my wife pointed out, she goes, Mike, think about this. She goes, what's amazing and most profound about this is the most significant thing Jesus had to say was not said in a grand sermon in front of a crowd of people. It was said by a guy who showed up quietly, secretively at night. And he heard the most profound thing Jesus would ever have to say. For God so loved the world. So God so loved you, Nick. 
Nick is a good example for us that if we're willing to risk coming to Jesus, even with our doubts, we may not get what we want, but we'll certainly get what we need, what we need to overcome our doubts, to walk in faith and gain the life that Jesus gave his life for. But I also want to point out something else. When Nick showed up, Jesus did not let Nick's thoughts and doubts determine the conversation. There's a time and a place where Jesus maybe will sit in a question in the muck and mire. I usually wanted to sit in the muck and mire a lot longer. But he's going to make sure that Nick's doubts decrease so that his truth can increase. That our doubts would decrease and his truth would increase. What we learn from Jesus is that when we do show up, he speaks truth that we need to hear. Sometimes that truth is hard stuff. Nick heard some hard things. He heard that, Nick, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. That the old way, your way of doing things is not going to work. That, Nick, honestly, you can't be trusted and neither can anybody else. But there's also good stuff. Actually, the good news. That in spite of all that, God loves you. God is love. That God did not send His Son to condemn us, but to save us. That transformation that you're hoping for can really happen. Though there's a mystery in it, we don't totally understand it. It's a reality. But not, Nick, and not to all of us. Not because you can, not, not by doing more things, more do's and more don'ts, following the law somehow better, but by simple faith in me. That's good news. That's really good news. Let me finish with a little story about myself. I kind of debated about going all the way back into my own history. When I was an 18-year-old college freshman here, uh, that was just about 30 years ago. Matter of fact, I know it was just about 30 years ago because this summer I went to my 30-year high school class reunion. And uh, so did my wife. And it's one of those things when you go to a high school class reunion, you know, it's like you walk in and there's some people you see and you're like, you haven't changed a bit. And they have it, right? They're like, you know, there may be a few gray hairs. Maybe they look just like they did when last time I saw them at 18. And then there's other people. <laughs> you walk in, you're like, you look at the name tag, you look at them. You look at the name tag, you're like, you took the wrong name tag. You know, like, yeah, this is not the same person. But it makes you reflect a little bit on how much change has occurred in your life. And certainly for somebody like myself, I grew up believing that God exists and I believed in Christmas and Easter. Good American I was. You know, I believed in those things. Um, but really, I had no walk or no relationship with Jesus Christ. I was a freshman here at the University of Washington and I became intrigued by Jesus. To be honest with you, what happened to me in my own life is I met some guys in the football team and a coach that, that made Christianity attractive. And I thought, you know, I'm busy building my resume. I'm a student here at the University of Washington. That's a good thing. You know, I'm a football player. That's a good thing. I've got this wonderful girlfriend who eventually became my wife. That's a good thing. I was building my resume. I hopefully will get out of the UW. And I'll get a good job, you know, well-paying job, you know, not too much, just enough, you know, it'll be good. I'll have, I'll grow older, I'll have, I'll have well-behaved children. I mean, I'm building my resume, right? I'm doing all those, I'm thinking through the resume, and I thought, and be a Christian. It was like a good thing to do. I mean, Steve Largent was a Christian. I respected Steve Largent. Thought I'd throw that name out for some of us out here. Some of the young people are like, going, Steve Largent, so... But something happened to me. 
in the spring of my freshman year, a matter of fact, some stuff that I can't go into, I don't have the time to go into all the details, but in essence, some stuff happened to me that wasn't so good. My life kind of began to fall apart. Some stuff happened to me that wasn't good, but I also began to do some stuff that wasn't so good in the lives of other people. And the world around me began to fall apart. And this desire that I had to want to be a Christian, to add Jesus and Christianity to my resume, I began to discover there was something more to this. On June 21st, I actually have a date, June 21st, 1983, Something changed. I think what changed is the mystery that Jesus talks about here to Nicodemus about being born again, this born of the Spirit thing. We can't explain how it all happens. There's a whole bunch of stuff that predates it and postdates it and all the different things that go on. But I think that was the moment in my life where I realized something. I realized that there's a big difference between wanting to be a Christian and realizing you need Jesus Christ. There's a big difference between adding Jesus Christ to your resume, finding Jesus to be an interesting teacher, somebody who's intriguing to kind of keep in your life, something to put on the dock at a little country club to be a part of, and instead to realize that you need Jesus Christ each and every day of your life. Or there is no such thing as life for you. And I realized that. And it changed who I was in the direction that I was heading in my life. Is there doubt? Of course. Do I still struggle things naturally? Just like you do as well. But there's good news to be found, and that is that Jesus Christ died for you, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sent his Holy Spirit into our lives so that we can truly experience the life that he intended for us. Let's embrace it. Let's jump. And let's help others that are struggling to do so as well in Jesus' name. Father, help us. Help us. To embrace by faith the good news of Jesus Christ. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206 524 7301 extension 117